0: I'm not the one everybody, and welcome to WChat. Today, we are interviewing two guests again, Dr. Mira Shaw and Dr. Natalie Hinchcliffe for part three of our four-part mini series regarding their work with hormone therapy and the LGBTQ population. And if you haven't listened to part two of this, you're definitely going to want to. There is some overlap between the two. They do touch on hormone therapy in that episode, and then we will be exploring it more in this episode. So we enjoyed previously interviewing Dr. Shaw and Dr. Hinchcliffe regarding their work. And we are happy that they are both able to join us again. And if you love this episode as much as we do and want to keep the show recording, rate us on iTunes and become a patron of the WCHAT podcast. And you can find out more information about becoming a patron on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. And also, if you become a patron, you do get our show notes, which will include all of the links to everything that we talk about within the podcast, as well as just quick tips and information that we do go over.
1: Yeah. So thank you for joining us again, Dr. Shaw and Dr. Hinchcliffe. As you know now, we usually start out giving our listeners a little background about the people we're speaking with. But since we already interviewed you both previously, could you just give us a quick summary of your backgrounds as it relates to your experience providing hormone therapy? And if you want to start, Dr. Shaw.
2: Yeah, so my name is Dr. Mira Shaw, and I am a family medicine physician practicing in New York City. I work at a federally qualified health center called callum Lord Community Health Center. It's located in Chelsea in downtown Manhattan, and we serve the LGBT community. I specialize in HIV medicine, and I also provide gender-affirming care, which can include hormone therapy.
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Natalie Hinchcliffe. Mira and I actually did residency together in New York at Mount Sinai Beth Israel. So we're both family medicine physicians. I currently practice in Ohio. I am from Key West, Florida, which is a wonderful, very uh, LGBT accepting and affirming island off the southernmost point, or we are at the southernmost point rather, but out of the southern tip of Florida. And so my experiences growing up there and then moving through providing women's healthcare, focusing first as a women's studies major in college, and then involvement with Gay Straight Alliance and Medical Students for Choice. Meeting awesome people like Mira is how I ended up here. I started providing hormone therapy the education to do that while I was in medical school on a third year elective rotation at callen Lord, which is where Mira has worked these last few years. So we both are in different ways, part of the Cal and Lord family and a testament to the extremely awesome training and focus on patient-centered care that they provide with respect to LGBTQ identified people and specifically for those people who are interested in hormones. We have both been trained at the same place.
1: The other question we typically ask is what informs your perspective or your practice? And since we interviewed you both before, maybe you could reframe your response and share with our listeners your philosophy of practice as it relates to providing hormone therapy. Uh, My philosophy
2: around this is that hormone therapy is just a part or can be a part of gender affirming care. Not everyone seeks hormone therapy. Everyone's gender journey is unique. It can involve a social transition. It can involve hormone therapy it can involve a surgical transition. And hormone therapy is just the medical management of a transition. And so the beginning of every visit, I always ask patients, what does your gender journey look like? And how can I help you get to where you want to be? And, you know, I always let them know that their gender journey is about them. And I'm just here to facilitate it the best way that I can. That's sort of my philosophy around gender affirming care.
3: I think that My philosophy on gender affirming care, it's certainly very similar. And I think it's very informed by my philosophy on reproductive health care in general, and the idea of bodily autonomy and being patient centered. A lot of the same philosophies that we apply when we're talking about contraception or abortion, pregnancy as a more broad component of people's reproductive and sexual lives. We're talking about doing the right thing for the patient and letting them live what is true for them. And in that way, providing hormones to someone who identifies either as transgender or different from their sex assigned at birth or who identifies somewhere different from their sex assigned at birth along the gender spectrum, it's really about helping enable them to access autonomy, bodily autonomy to whether they're like Dr. Shah said, whether that's a surgical transition or a journey or purely medical or purely social, it's our ability to provide them hormones and the education along with those so that they can access what the life experience that is right for them.
0: Great. And so like we said, we're going to discuss hormone therapy. So let's jump right in. And in our previous episode, we asked both of you to talk about the type of advocacy work that you're doing in general with the LGBTQ community. And we're wondering if you could maybe highlight or discuss again any advocacy work that you do specific to hormone therapy
2: specifically related to hormone therapy, I would say that I, I don't know if this is direct advocacy, but I, I do give a lot of talks to medical students and residents about gender affirming care. And a component of that is hormone therapy, because many medical students and many residents don't receive this type of training in their education. And so I, you know, just last week gave a talk at Mount Sinai to the residents there about hormone therapy and surgical transition. So that's one form of advocacy that I do because as Natalie said, she and I both received this training a little bit later in our, our education, or at least she she actually received it earlier than I did. And so I think that it's important.
3: I think the thing that makes this question unique though too is that hormones are a small part of some patient's gender journey, as Dr. Shaw was saying. I don't know that there are things that are really targeted only at hormones because that's that's only some patient's desired experience other than the components that we participate in, such as education. Because the big part of hormones is knowing how to give them and what the research shows and how to safely do it. So I think a lot of the advocacy that's hormone-specific is education. Like she said, giving lectures, the medical students and residents that I train in the different clinics that I work at, it's really the targeted parts, I think are really specific to the educational part because that's really the only component that separates it from other aspects of LGBTQ care is knowledge.
2: One thing that I want people to take away from this podcast and from this episode specifically is that hormone therapy is just a small part of gender affirming care. And, you know, in the media, we're hearing a lot about bathroom laws and how, you know, people can only use the bathroom that consistent with, you know, the, the genitalia that they have. And, you know, this upsets me for many reasons. But one thing being the common misconception that all people who are trans identifying have had surgery. And that's not true. Many people will go their entire lives without having a surgery at all yet they identify as a gender that is different than the one that they were assigned at birth. And, you know, that's something that I really want to highlight in this episode is that some people may never use hormone therapy and identify as transgender. So you were going to say something, Natalie?
3: I was just going to say that I think that that actually what we're getting down to is like the biggest piece of advocacy that we participate in specifically around hormones is helping increase the understanding that hormones are not a required part of anyone's gender journey, but specifically in the more popular media idea of people who are transgender, the idea that there is this like stepwise approach that they identify, they get on hormones, they get surgery, they quote unquote have transitioned. So I think the biggest advocacy that we actually do with respect to hormones is dispelling that myth that hormones are a required part of identifying as a gender different from your birth gender. A friend of my partner's posted on Facebook once when they were talking, when the military ban was something the media was covering, about why transgender people should not be allowed to serve in the military. And part of his reasoning was that they have to have daily hormonal care and that they have to have surgery and that after the surgery, there's all these additional components of risk associated with their healing. And that, I feel like, is a very good example of where we have these massive knowledge breakdowns And I think that it also translates into barriers for people providing this care because they assume that they have to know about hormones. Not every single patient will desire hormones, but what you do have to know about and what you do have to be aware of is the way that people identify the way that they practice so that you can better serve them their health care. But that doesn't mean that hormones are involved. They are not a required part of identifying outside the cis identity
2: and medically we say that but a lot of insurance companies will require that patients be on hormones for a certain amount of time before they get surgery so i had a patient the other day who you know wants to is a is transmasculine identifying not using testosterone as part of their transition And wants to get a hysterectomy, but the insurance company is requiring that I write a note saying that the person has socially transitioned and has been living as this identified gender for, you know, a a certain amount of time, as well has been taking testosterone therapy for a certain amount of time before they will approve that the patient get the hysterectomy. And I wrote a very long letter saying well, that's not medically indicated. And that, that actually doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I'm still waiting for, you know, the appeal and to go through and whatnot. But these are sort of the hurdles patients deal with and that the providers deal with who are trying to advocate for them. And I think
3: hearing you talk, Mira, it really highlights too the difference among states too, because we're, for many of my patients, not even in a space where there is the possibility of the insurance covering the surgery if they desire to have one. So for most patients who come to me desiring surgery, that's a conversation about cost. But then it's the surgeons themselves who require at least a year of having been on therapy because in their understanding, that's what it means to be transgender or not to identify as any gender other than cis is that you're on hormones, that you want them, that you're on them. And so that they can feel most comfortable performing the surgery, or perhaps there are medical reasons as well, but so that they can feel comfortable proceeding with the surgery. They want to see that someone's been on hormones for a year. And that's, that may not be true to that person's gender journey, as you've been saying, Dr. Shaw, like that might not be a part of what's right for them. And I see it when I have patients primarily come to me from the coasts. I've had a few, non-binary identified transmasculine experienced patients come in from the Francisco Bay area. And those patients have been able to have top surgery without ever being on hormones, top surgery being removal of breast tissue. Then I have patients who have the same gender identity here in Ohio are referred to the, to surgeons as their request, but not on hormones. And the surgeons are not comfortable performing the surgery because they haven't been on hormones. And so you see these two very different experiences of access to desired care based on where someone lives, which again, brings us back to the comparison with reproductive autonomy and how in general, where you live should not dictate what kind of medical care you're able to access, whether it's related to your reproductive health or your gender identity shouldn't matter where you live.
2: So, I think of it as a lot of ignorance and a lot of not kind of understanding what the gender affirming experience is like and insurance companies you know are putting in a lot of money these surgeries do cost money, and they want to make sure that these patients aren't going to quote unquote change their mind and so it's almost like proving to them that you know, you are committed to this gender that you are identifying as by either living as that gender for a certain amount of time or committing to hormone therapy for a certain amount of time. That That's where I think that it stems from. But I think we have to balance that too with the
3: lived experiences of hundreds of thousands of patients, which is that people very rarely want to undo work that is gender affirming for them. It is usually indicative of another medical condition if someone starts on hormones and then quote unquote changes their mind and does not want to present as that gender they said they identified as. I don't want to say that that's not a thing, but it is extremely rare. It is definitely the minority people are clear about their gender identity and in many cases their gender path and there it is patriarchal of the medical system to doubt that they know their bodies their identities and what's best for them but it truly is a matter of us asking us being the medical community asking patients to prove it to us we want you to prove to us that you are truly transgender by having been on hormones before we give you the surgery and i think that of course, we're not agreeing with that, right? We're not saying that that's right. But I am hopeful, having not had personal conversations with the insurance companies and physicians that we're alluding to, that the intention is primarily to do what's right by the patient and to first do no harm. But I think that it is a, it's those those intentions are misguided and ultimately inhibit patients from getting care that they know is right for them.
2: The detransition rate, you know, is about 3%. So it is pretty rare that someone detransitions. And, it, and you're right, Natalie, it usually happens for, you know, a variety of reasons. It's not usually because somebody, quote unquote, changed their mind. And, you know, ultimately, we have to remember that the trans community has a really high suicide attempt rate, about 42%. There was one study, a really good study that was done that showed that of the people who were reporting a history of suicide attempt in the past 60% of them said that a medical provider had denied them care I think about that a lot when i'm practicing it's important to trust the patient and to trust that they know what's best for them and for me to be supportive of that and for me to provide them with care that's safe because Honestly, um, you know, a lot of people when they're denied care, they will look for care elsewhere. They will travel to like Mexico and, you know, get surgeries and come back and their surgeries are definitely botched. Or a lot of, you know, my transfeminine patients will get estrogen from like a back alley in the Bronx and they'll share needles and put themselves at risk for HIV and for hep C. And who knows what's in those estrogen concoctions. And so it's really important that, you know, we keep all of these things in mind when thought of even like denying somebody cares, crossing your mind, you should really keep remember that what you're doing is you're really actually protecting the patient by by giving them what they need. I've had several patients Now,
3: and I'm only a few years into my independent career as an attending, say to me that I gave them a second chance at life or that I saved their life or that they would rather die than live the rest of their lives in the body that they have or that... One patient who came to me from, uh, he lives in a country I will not specify in the Middle East and was here very briefly with his family. And he said that in his country, people's families kill them for being transgender, but he would rather take that risk because he knows that he would rather live as his true gender, which is male and go to heaven as he believes he will than spend the rest of his life on this earth in the body that he has. And with the gender feelings that go along with the hormones that he currently has. And I mean, once you've been affected by a patient's experience like that, it's really hard to think of this care as anything less than that, because it really, I mean, it can be truly life-saving when you balance the risks and benefits and think about the mental health risks of people living in an unaffirmed experience.
2: If somebody is a consenting adult, you know, of age, like, I, I don't think I've ever... Denied anybody care. I think maybe one person who had schizophrenia and the voices were telling her to transition. And so I needed, you know, some support from my mental health colleagues to help me with that patient. But other than that, like, I really do look at it as life saving care and it really engages them in the other care that they need in their HIV care, and their Hep C care, in their diabetes care when, you know, When patients receive gender affirming care, their mental health improves, their quality of life improves, their overall well being improves, and, you know, all of their other health parameters improve as well.
1: So when physicians are refusing care to transgender patients, does that mean they're refusing to prescribe them hormones if they request them? Or are they refusing care in other ways? it can
2: be of a variety. Refusal can come come in a variety of ways. So it can be perceived as being just as something, I don't want to say as simple as misgendering, because it can be a huge deal for people. But using the wrong pronouns with patients can create a barrier and make them not want to come back to receive care. That can be perceived as a refusal. I think that physicians saying, I don't know how to take care of you. Like I can't think of anything more upsetting to hear. Like if I were a patient and somebody said, I don't know how to take care of you and I don't know where to send you, that would be terrible. And or especially after having opened up to this physician about all these personal
3: components of your life.
2: Yes, exactly. And or someone saying like, oh, you must have a mental health issue. You need to see a psychiatrist. You don't need to see me. I've heard all of these things as reasons for patients not going back to a
1: doctor to get care. That kind of leads to my next question. Would all physicians know how to provide this care or in refusing services? Obviously, they could help them seek those resources. But is there some physicians that just wouldn't know what's needed?
3: Yes. And that's an important to really clarify, because what we're saying is not that every single physician who has the ability, which we would include pediatrics, internal medicine, family medicine, OB, potentially surgery, like lots of different specialties would have the ability to provide gender-affirming care, specifically hormones. But that is an extra area of knowledge. That's one of the areas that like Dr. Shaw was saying she's training medical students in in New York that I'm training medical students and residents here in Ohio it is an area of knowledge to be gained similar to the HIV care that we both provide you need to know about medication side effects dosing monitoring etc but the most basic component of providing gender affirming care is using the correct name the correct pronoun, and asking open-ended questions that allow the patient to share with you, as we talked in the last podcast about their sexual health experiences, how they have sex, where they have sex, what parts of their body they call what. And those components, every single physician and every single healthcare provider should be expected to have. You should call people by by their correct name. You should provide care that affirms their gender. You should use the correct pronoun. Whether or not you provide hormones, being that it's an additional area of competency and education, is up to each physician potentially. And it's been a tremendous asset to both of our careers to be able to do all of that.
2: And just to say, it's actually not very difficult at all. Like the medicine behind it is very easy. And I think that there's also this fear among providers like, oh gosh, like I don't know how to do that. And it sort of feels overwhelming, but it's really quite simple. And that's what I try to, that's really the one thing that I tell people when I'm teaching is like, this is the takeaway for you, that it's really easy.
1: So could you go into that a little bit more? That's our next question is how did you get your knowledge and experience to provide hormone therapy? And then if one of our listeners or hopefully several are interested, where can they go?
2: Natalie and I sort of got our training in a similar way. So you could probably answer for both of us. So when I was in medical
3: school, I searched the American Medical Association LGBT rotation something. And I don't know that that website has been updated since I did that search, because I think it hadn't been updated when I was doing that search in like 2012 or something for several years prior. But I basically found the places as a medical student that I could do elective training and I applied to or looked into every single one of them. One of them was Callen Lord, where Mira worked after she completed residency in New City. York- City, the federally qualified health center that does a phenomenal job caring for people of all gender identities, sexual orientations and behaviors, including hormones for people who desire them, including HIV care. And I went there as a third year medical student, a fourth year medical student, and again as a second year resident. So I did my, I got my training through elective components whenever and wherever I could. Now where I practice is another one of the sites that is on was on that list that I looked at <laughs> years ago, where medical students can go for elective rotations to get this training in hormone care. And there are several graduates from the program that I train at that have gone on in other areas of Ohio to provide this care to open up other clinics. So really, elective care, elective education is where I've learned it. Same.
0: So how can other physicians or care providers rather in general gain this knowledge? Dr. Shaw talked before about the
3: UCSF protocols and transgender protocols. I find them to be incredibly accessible, very evidence-based and up-to-date and a great resource for people who are interested and have questions. And I think that it's a matter of putting yourself in educational opportunities, whether that's attending conferences, whether that's shadowing a colleague during their clinic, self-directed education, of course. But really, after you have the knowledge in your brain, it's really a matter of being in a setting where you can have those conversations with patients and have colleagues that support you as you build your competency.
0: And another question I have is kind of using your words, if it's simple medicine, how come the hormone therapy or this gender affirming care isn't part of the four-year curriculum for med students? Yeah, I think it's lack of awareness.
2: And I think that a lot of residency programs now, especially family medicine, internal medicine, programs that are focused on in primary care, and the ones that are situated in an urban setting, I think that they are beginning to incorporate LGBT health um, as part of the curriculum. Now, I'm not saying that it really leads to residents and medical students becoming competent in it. But it does at least provide some exposure and spark interest among people, which is something. And so yeah, I think that there is a lot more awareness and sort of this shift into opening up and breaking down some of that stigma and those barriers. And residents and medical students are asking lots of questions and they want to learn. Yeah, I mean, I think when we look
3: at different areas of what residents are trained on and what medical students are trained on, it does, in a Lot of ways reflect what we in the medical community have valued and where we have placed importance. So, not every family medicine physician will do sports medicine, but it is more integrated into our family medicine residency education experiences as far as throughout the United States than LGBTQ care. And, like many components of the care that Dr. Shaw and I provide, and I think what components are required really speaks to what is valued and what is not stigmatized versus what is. Part of the advocacy work that I did in residency was trying to incorporate miscare management longitudinally into residency programs in family medicine. And a lot of the pushback that I got was that it was too similar to abortion care, which to me is purely about stigma because I was not talking about abortion. That's not what we were trying to get residents trained in. But the similarities and the stigma around abortion resulted in that not being deemed to be a necessary part of family medicine training. So I do think that there is a large amount of people's personal value judgments and stigma around what residents get trained on, because if it's a part of the requirement, it will happen. Anything else is on the residency to find time for and space for through their own value system of putting forth that effort.
2: I became competent in managing HIV when I was a resident, and that was pretty much self-directed. And, you know, I did have some mentors in residency who helped me manage patients, but I really learned the ins and outs of HIV medicine on my own. And in a lot of my patients who were living with HIV were also trans identifying and seeking hormone therapy as part of their gender affirming care. And fewer attendings I found were comfortable in managing that. And I remember learning it with my attending and we quickly realized this is actually pretty easy. And it's such a simple thing that you can do and it goes such a long way. And it keeps people engaged in care and it keeps people coming back. And you can see their mood change, and you can see their well-being being being affected. And, you know, as Natalie said, a lot of what we learned is just basically on our own volition and and our own desire to incorporate that as part of our training and as ultimately as part of our careers.
0: So I know that we kind of touched on a lot of this already. And so in some ways, I guess we'll kind of take another step back and move away from more of a systems level and talking more about the individual patient care. But maybe for our listeners, can you just talk briefly about hormone therapy in general? For example, why is it used? Who is pursuing hormone therapy? Therapy, that type of thing. Individuals
2: will oftentimes, sometimes seek to use hormone therapy as a way to alter their secondary sex characteristics. For example, feminizing hormones such as estrogen and testosterone blockers. So an individual who is a male assigned at birth, who is wanting to have more feminization of their body will seek estrogen therapy. And along with estrogen therapy, Therapy comes, um, you have to give testosterone blockers. Estrogen therapy will cause breast tissue enlargement, it'll cause fat redistribution, softening of the skin, fat redistribution, so more fat around the thighs and the hip, and then testosterone blockage with the first line medication that we use for testosterone blockage is spironolactone, which is also a, a blood pressure lowering medication, but that's used to block testosterone and decreases hair growth, it causes testicular shrinkage, it decreases libido, and it can also affect fertility as we've mentioned in in the previous podcast. Um, It can also decrease sperm production as well. Feminization hormone, feminizing hormones typically don't alter the voice. So many patients will opt for um, voice therapy. There is actually a surgical procedure that can be done if voice therapy doesn't work or doesn't achieve the results the patient is looking for. That's what feminization therapy does. Now, Natalie, if you want to go through testosterone therapy. Sure. So
3: for patients who were born female and identify as male along that spectrum, transmasculine, or simply desire to move their hormones into a range and their experience into a range that is more consistent with a gender identity, such as gender queer or gender non-binary, we only use testosterone. There are many different ways that patients use testosterone, but the most common form is the injectable form. And it's, of course, the contrast and some of those secondary sex characteristics that Mira talked about as far as the change. So noticing increased hair growth, uh, changes in voice do come along with that, unlike the estrogen and testosterone blockers, trans men or transmasculine people on T will notice their voice changes, their hair growth, hairier in areas, any male pattern baldness that runs in their families will come for them too And, and fat redistribution and more of like a central adipose tissue makeup that we see more commonly in people born male. They will not have changes in their growth plates because if they've started as an adult they're already closed and so as far as getting taller, larger hands, larger feet, things like that, their body in that way will not change. There are also changes to the genitalia, the clitoris enlarges. And of course, there's the mood components as well. Increased libido, sometimes increased energy. But the way that I really try and like just colloquially characterize it to patients is it's a second puberty. So the things that you see boys going through in middle school are some of the changes that we anticipate happening for you. Of course, we're doing it in a monitored way. We're looking out for side effects. We're having our in-person encounter to check for different things that may be concerning and to just perform overall general care for individuals. Like like Dr. Shaw said, it really does help people to stay engaged in their care when part of their care is gender affirming. But essentially, we're bringing people into a hormonal level and a gender experience that is congruent with their gender identity.
0: And can you maybe talk about when a patient first comes to you and says, I want to start hormone therapy. And let's say that this patient is over 18. So they're an adult, because I assume it's different based on minors, which we'll get into. But I'm just curious, how does that conversation go? What does that communication look like? And then what does that communication look like after that first initial appointment?
2: So... The way that I approach my patients upon first meeting is just asking them about, you know, exactly what they're looking for and what their gender journey looks like. Most people, I would say like 95% of people come to me knowing what they're looking for. A smaller percentage kind of wants me to help them, you know, learn more about what I can do to help them. But a lot of people come in pretty informed about what options are available. And so when a patient comes in requesting gender-affirming care, again, I ask them what that looks like for them, if someone is seeking hormone therapy We'll talk about the options. If it's feminization, then we'll talk about estrogen. You know, there's an injectable, oral, there's a patch. And then we'll talk about testosterone blockage. Some patients don't want testosterone blockage because they still want to maintain their libido. Some people just want estrogen. Some people don't want hormone therapy at all. We try to minimize the barriers to care. So we use the informed consent model. We go through, you know, Risks, benefits, and alternatives, and make sure that the patient knows what the risks are and what the benefits are. And I also, at this initial meeting, I talk about sort of realistic expectations, what an individual can likely achieve with hormone therapy. You know, some patients will say, I really want, like, a D cup, you know, breasts, And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know, I can't promise you that because every individual has sort of this inherent potential for growth. And you may achieve that you may not. We'll see you know what the estrogen does. And it can take a long time. So another thing that I do is make sure that they understand that a, a full transition can really take like two, two and a half years. So it's a slow process. And if you know, a patient is not happy with what hormones are doing, then surgery is an option, or we can go to surgery sooner. So it, it's really about kind of outlining what hormones can do, what hormones can't do, surgery can do what surgery can't do, and making sure that that's all in line with what the patient expects.
3: I think the other parts of how that first visit is sort of different from other initiation of care is paying attention in particular to the patient's safety and support, which is definitely unique to hormonal care and is much more pronounced in my care of patients in Ohio than it was in New York. So much more commonly here in Ohio, I'm having patients who are not going to their full desired transition or not doing it at this time because of unsafe home situations, work situations. So in the goals, as Dr. Shaw discusses, that would be one of the components that we talk about is if they're safe in the space that they're in to have these goals reached, to have these physical characteristics begin to be altered. Are they safe when they go outside of their home in their neighborhood? Are they safe at the grocery store? Are they going to lose their job? Um, These are realities for a lot of our patients. And also asking about a mental health history, which is not something that I would say that I feel the need to address specifically with every patient, but I definitely feel the need to address with all of my patients undergoing gender affirming care, specifically hormones, to ask about a history of self-harm and to ask about mental health as it pertains to their safety and support. Because I can count on one hand the number of patients who did not have a history of self-harm almost every single one of the patients I have had who has come to me for hormonal care to affirm their gender has a history of self-harm. And that is not because being transgender or being non-binary or anywhere along this spectrum is in itself a mental illness. It is not. And we do not, as Mira does not either, need letters from mental health providers to confirm that this person is set in their gender identity. That's part of trusting patients and affirming their recognition of themselves and their desires and their experiences. But we're also making sure that they are in a safe situation for the changes that are going to happen.
0: How do you manage the intersection of mental health and identity or wanting to do the hormone therapy? What
3: I tell my patients is being transgender or identifying as gender non-binary or anywhere outside of cisgender is in itself not a mental illness. We do not need letters from mental health providers to affirm, proceed with affirming care and hormones. We trust our patients. However, being transgender or gender non-conforming or gender queer or however someone may identify that is not cisgender in our current society, and depending on specifically what their community is, that can precipitate mental illness by people being misgendered, mistreated, refused care by medical professionals, kicked out of their homes, losing their jobs, all of these experiences of dysphoria, or they can lead to dysphoria, they can perpetuate dysphoria. And with that can come depression, anxiety, and self-harm. And that is why we're specifically looking into the mental health experiences of our patients who desire hormones, because of the way that many other parts of their experience in society affect them.
2: And gender affirming care really does alleviate a a lot of that mental health, a lot of that distress, a lot of that anxiety and depression that patients come to us with. And I will say that the current political climate has triggered a lot of feelings of distress and discrimination and stigma. And that's something that we've seen in our clinic with many of our patients and that we've had to work with them through. And it's hard and I don't have a good answer for it. It's just, you know, making sure that they they do feel comfortable getting their care, you know, Cal and Lord and, you know, where Natalie works and just reminding them that there is a safe space for people to come free of discrimination, free of judgment, free of stigma. Because because what's happening, um, plea is not, it's, it's not helping.
0: So then how do you manage the intersection of mental health and identity or the hormone therapy and everything that you've been talking about?
3: I think there's a few parts to it. I think that you find where it truly intersects. And in those cases, we're typically talking about dysphoria. And you also find cases or don't find cases where it does not intersect and it's completely separate. People who are cisgender, have depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar we people who are transgender can have depression, anxieties. Kids, right? Like our gender identity does not mean that we cannot have mental health diagnoses and mental health experiences that have nothing to do with our gender. So, separating those pieces out, when it is a true component of dysphoria that's creating the depression, anxiety related to living in a body and and without gender affirming care, then as Dr. Shaw said, we honestly expect the hormones will make things much better because they will reduce a lot of that dysphoria as their body begins to match their identity and their feelings begin to match their identity. And then cases where it is separate from their gender identity, then it is separate. And we deal with it the same way that we deal with depression, anxiety, and all these mental health diagnoses for our cisgender patients. I think that as she mentioned earlier, it's very, very rare that mental health actually prevents a patient from being able to access gender affirming care. Dr. Shaw talked about a patient who heard voices and one of the voices was saying, to do hormones, obviously that is something that needs to be clarified. Is that the patient's intention or, you know, is that their true identity or is that a voice in their head that's telling them to do things that is totally separate from how they identify? I've only had one patient where that was where I had a similar concern with the intersection of their mental health and it was a patient who had dissociative identity disorder and who actually presented to me with a letter from their mental health professional that said that their primary identity was transgender female. And so that we would be providing affirming care to the primary identity and not potentially committing a mistake in providing care that was not congruent with the primary identity. The other component, of course, is when patients are very depressed, if they are suicidal, if there are concerns that the way the hormones affect their mind could be harmful to them. But while that is a concern and something that I think that we screen for, recognizing that estrogen can have some depressing type effects on some people in some situations and that testosterone can have some sort of elevating, potentially anxiety type feelings on some people in some situations. Those are areas that we pay attention to and that we prevent side effects. That's why we're doing it they're coming in with a mental health professional, monitoring them, we're doing it together to make sure those things don't happen. But it has never been, in my experience, a limitation to people per- being able to get affirming care. It's really an awareness, a risk versus benefit conversation, a safety conversation. And we do expect and have seen consistently that dysphoria is lessened or goes away almost completely when people's gender is affirmed through hormones.
0: So I just want to back up to the previous question where we talked about how that conversation looks if someone is older than 18. How does the conversation around hormone therapy change for someone who is a minor and how do you approach that? So in the clinic that I work at, we oftentimes will
3: have uh, minor patients, patients under the age of 18 come in. It's really a matter about where they are at in their pubertal changes as to what medication is best for them. If they have for instance, I had a patient who was, I believe, eight years old. If they have not begun the majority of pubertal changes, then the best medication for them is a a blocker or something that would prevent them from presenting their birth gender characteristics. And that is not care that I provide, but many patients have already go through puberty changes. They've noted chest development, hair growth, they may have started their menses, and it may have been several years that they have been in that experience. So they started their menses at age 13, they're coming to me at age 16, they already have chest development and progression, and they are interested in not blocking further because things have already kind of started and gone through the process. We treat them just like adult patients. The difference is they're minors and we need to make sure that we have the consent of both of their parents, which sometimes can be complicated if the parents are uninformed, unaffirming, uncomfortable, or if both parents are not on the same page because both parents do have to consent. So it's usually more than a few appointments before we get them on medication, on hormones, if that is what's right for them. Because as Dr. Shaw said, many of our patients who come in for gender affirming care, they know who they are and they know what they want and what they need. But the same cannot necessarily be said for their loved ones, just as it it was a process for that patient in coming out to themselves and recognizing their true gender identity. Their family, parents, siblings sometimes can be a bit behind them in that process where they're still going through the experience of understanding that this is their child, this is their loved one, this is how they identify, this is what this means. And so that it can just take a little longer. And of course, when we talk about risks to medications, anyone would be concerned for a loved one who is young and who is making a choice that perhaps that loved one can can't quote unquote understand because it's not their experience. And that also does come with some risks. It's about making sure that they are appropriate for hormones versus blockers. And then it is about making sure that their guardians that would consent are on board as far as understanding and accepting the risks and benefits. And in those cases, it's, it's so much more of a family experience because everyone continues to be very involved in that care. And it is a transition in some ways as a Family, just as that person transitions to a different gender expression, their parents or loved ones transition from having a daughter to a son, and there
2: is the process that the family goes through in many of those cases. I was just going to add that you know we do see similar situations among the adult population. I have a patient who is a trans of the trans feminine experience, and she had started hormone therapy and was on it for maybe six to eight months, and her wife who is this? cis female, was having a hard time with it. And for my patient, you know, she decided to detransition. So this is one of the few cases where detransition occurs. And she said, listen, like, I love my wife so much. And she is an incredible support to me. And I know that she wants what's best for me, but she's just not quite there yet. And like, I want, I know that this is what I want. And she understands that she's just having a hard time with it. And I want to go to therapy with her and restart hormones when, you know, she and I are like on the same page and she's almost there but just not quite yet. And they, you know, went to therapy for a while. And then she she came back to me and restarted hormones. And now you know, they're both actually we had a family visit going back to family visits, the two of them came in to see me and everyone's on the same page. Everyone's on board. And my patient is now transitioning and is very, very happy.
0: So how do you communicate with the parent who might be ambivalent about their child taking hormones?
3: I think that you ask very specifically, what is it that you're worried about if you go through with this? What is it that you're worried about if you don't go through with this? It's motivational interviewing, right? It's how we talk to patients about smoking cessation and try and help patients elicit for themselves why they feel certain ways and what they desire and are worried about that is informing Their choices. And ultimately, often you're trying to help the parent understand the risk to the child if they do not transition, if they do not start on hormones, because it is much more accessible for many cisgender parents to understand the risks of a medication or the risks of starting on hormones. It's much harder because it's not their personal experience and not their personal identity for them to understand the harm of not doing that, of not going on those hormones.
2: It can be hard. I mean, our society operates on a binary. So anything that goes against that can be really confusing for people, whether they're adults, whether they're minors, you know, it, whether they're going through it themselves or a loved one. It's about, wait, how do I process that in the society that we live in today? And does it make sense for me? Does it make sense for others? Does it matter what others think? You know, or is it just about me and my happiness? And how am I going to operate in a world that functions on a binary? And I hear that a lot from my patients, and it's a lot to process for everyone involved.
1: I wanted to go back to this um, question that Natalie brought up, children before they're in puberty and that you don't provide that. Do you see patients that are young like that? And then where do they go to for that kind of care?
3: We have a gender awesome pride clinic for kids affiliated with the clinic that I work at that includes pediatric endocrinologists. So people who are specialized in providing the blockers and doing the monitoring. So fortunately, we have a direct referral that's within our same system.
2: Whenever we're, you know, providing our patients with the informed consent, we do say that hormones may cause mood changes. Be be mindful of that. And you know, be sure to check in with me if you know you're feeling a certain way that's uncomfortable for you once we start hormones we see them back pretty frequently so that we're able to monitor that as well. But we do tell patients that, you know, they may experience, you know, sometimes patients who are started on testosterone injections may see a big drop in their mood right before the next injection is due. And so we'll tell them to then take the injection more frequently to offset that dip in mood. So those are very real things. I don't think that, you know, It's worsening any sort of stigma around mental health. We're just saying that you may experience mood changes that you should be mindful of. I think what's hard is that, and this I think speaks to
3: the experience of stigma as a provider within this, is that as I say these answers, I'm thinking of how could someone misuse what I'm saying against our patients?
0: Well, and I guess another question that we can ask then, you know, now that you that you mentioned that is as providers who do provide hormone therapy and work so closely with the LGBTQ population, do you yourselves experience any stigma from other providers or your families? And and how do you manage that?
2: really great question. You know, I do live and practice in New York, so professionally and in my social circles, I feel like I, you know, do not receive any stigma. If anything, I'm celebrated for the work that I do, and I'm really proud of it, and it's reinforced by those um, I surround myself with. I think outside of this bubble that I live in, sometimes I do get a lot of questions but again, I approach it with sort of an understanding of where people are coming from. I try not to expect people to meet me where I am. I try to meet them where they are and where they're coming from. And that sort of diminishes some of the anxiety that it gives me um, when I'm questioned. And, you know, people in the South really only know what they're exposed to. And so I try to be this. Liaison and I try to represent those that I serve. And again, I am not part of the community, but I am a fierce ally. And I try to educate people and say, I do this work because it is incredibly important. I do this work because I believe in human rights. And I think that I am providing care to people who have a really hard time accessing it. And the same goes for abortion care. You know, I say that I'm an abortion provider because there is a shortage. Is It is incredibly important. One out of four women will have an abortion in her lifetime. And there's the shortage of providers. And I have seen what that shortage and what restrictive laws have t- done to people. And, it, and I want to address that professionally and personally. And so all I can do is educate people um, and hope that that makes a difference.
3: I feel like it definitely depends on what your audience is and who you're surrounded by as far as pushback. I mean, working and training in New York was a very different ballgame than being here in Ohio. Providing LGBTQ specific care, I would not have come to Ohio to where I did if there wasn't already that care being provided. So I'm really joining into a system that's already been here for several years and that people that has a huge patient base and incredibly long wait list. And so the institution, the larger hospital institution that I'm a part of is very invested in that care because they've already seen the feedback from the patients, from the community and financially that that care is needed, desired, wanted, and more is necessary. Another area that I work where I'm helping A clinic to expand their care to include this care. I do come across a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings, but again, everyone's heart is in the right place and people's desire to expand their knowledge is certainly there as well. I think that in the comment that Mira made about you know comparing it to being an abortion provider, I think that fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately for the LGBTQ community. That conversation about gender identity and sexual orientation and behavior, people seem to be able to grasp. And, you know, we meet people where they're at, but hopefully we can bring them a little with us into a broader understanding that's more inclusive. And I think that that's a lot easier to do when we talk about LGBTQ health than it is when we talk about abortion. I think that it's much, much, much more difficult to open people's minds and help them find comfort with safe and legal care when we're talking about abortion versus when we're talking about LGBTQ care. So it certainly is different state to state for experiences in response to LGBTQ care, but nothing like the stigma around abortion.
1: I wanted to ask, you mentioned providers or some of the people that you're working with when you're trying to set up these services, having some misconceptions, holding some myths. Can you talk a little bit more about those, like what those misconceptions are? the
3: value that's placed on what letters what titles identities are put on a form and how that's written and how that's explained and the visibility of lgbtq things within a predominantly female space it's it's not specific to hormones so much i think the main sort of myths associated with hormones are that everyone who's not cis should and must be on and wants to be on hormones. I think that honestly is the biggest myth bus for that. But I was speaking more in terms of the LGBTQ care in general.
1: Would you be able to speak at all about hormone, hormone therapy and surgical therapy, if you want to add that about access for patients regarding cost and insurance? I think that's always something that, you know, gets pulled into the conversation, unfortunately.
2: Again, I practice in New York and uh, just a couple years ago, just very recently, New York State, the mandate saying that all public and private insurance plans have to cover the cost of all gender affirming care. So that's great. However, as we mentioned before, you know, insurance companies, they can create loopholes and create barriers to reimbursing the cost of surgeries or hormone therapy. And surgeons also have their own requirements for, you know, what a patient has to have before they can get their surgery. For a while, Medicaid in New York, they were saying that facial feminization surgery was cosmetic. And, you know, I would sit on the phone and talk to the other physician, you know, who was representing, you know, the insurance company and say, you know, it's not cosmetic. It's part of this patient's gender affirming care. And the law says that all gender affirming care has to be covered. And they said, well, no, this is cosmetic. Like, The patient wants their eyebrows lifted, it's cosmetic. That's not part of gender affirmation. And I'm like, well, it is because... You know, people who are assigned male at birth have lower brows and people who are assigned female at birth have higher brows. And it's just pretty simple. So there was a lot of that in the beginning. And now Medicaid is actually covering the cost of FFS. And so I think that there have been slowly a lot of changes um, in terms of coverage. Still, I do have a lot of patients who travel outside of the country to get their surgeries. A lot of people go to Thailand to get bottom surgery. I've had a lot of patients go to India to get bottom surgery, sometimes for cause, sometimes for aesthetic. Um, a lot of the surgeons in Thailand have a reputation of you know, having good outcomes. And so I have patients who fly there.
1: So I'm assuming like facial surgery and even the top surgery could be done by a plastic surgeon. Who typically does bottom surgery? Are these urologists or...
3: Yeah, we also have a surgeon here in Ohio who is gynecology trained. So as Doctor Shaw was saying There are now coming fellowships, Mount Sinai having the first trans surgery fellowship. But other than that, it's really been people who chose to get training or who sought it out or who were matched with a mentor that had that knowledge already. The assumption for me and my patients is that it's not going to be covered by their insurance. It's very rare that it is. I haven't had any patients who have had the surgery and who say it's covered. I have one patient... Who has a remarkable story about initially seeking top surgery and being denied because their insurance doesn't cover it? And they work as the diversity coordinator at their the college that they are at. And so they are literally the advocate for LGBTQ identified people on campus. And so they became the advocate for themselves. And a year later, after petitioning the school, now their insurance covers surgery as well as hormones. And so now they're back in the office, we re-referred them, and they would be my first patient who's had any gender-confirming surgery covered by their insurance. But it was literally through a year of advocating for themselves and being in a position already by their job to have their voice heard because I'm sure they're not the first person under that school's insurance that was denied that procedure, but they were the first person who was the wrong person to deny because they fought that and they won and it is a tremendous success story but it is the exception. Most patients are saving the five to $7,000 for top surgery. They are. I have no patients who are currently saving up money for bottom surgery because it is a much more expensive surgery, and I don't have any patients where that's within their, their capability to do at all. I have some patients who leave the state seeking less expensive procedures. I don't have any patients who have had the financial means to leave the country.
1: Are hormone therapies covered by insurance?
2: Not all insurances and not all hormones. no. In New York, yes, it is covered. And it's regardless of gender marker, it'll be. Like if you have M on your as your gender as your legal gender marker, then you can still get estrogen, for example.
3: And many insurances in Ohio, whether they are state specific or private, they will require a prior authorization in order to pay for hormones if they do pay for them at all. So that's just a process of the physician or provider, Essentially, fighting with the insurance company, it feels like to have those conversations and say that this is required important care. Kind feels kind of like a, a ring of fire to jump through unnecessarily.
1: One of the things that you mentioned in both your podcasts about family planning and this one is getting that sexual history and also calling people by their proper name and using the proper pronouns. How do your clinics assess pronouns? Do you do that something like it's screening and intake or how does that work for your clinics?
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about visibility, whether it's wearing a pronoun pin that clarifies to your patients that you are aware of pronouns and that they are variable and that you're going to ask theirs and that you are making it easy to know yours, as well as the staff that works within a building, the expression of gender by the people in the pictures on the walls, the pamphlets that are available in the waiting centers, the way that people ask questions on the phone when they schedule the appointments, the perception in the community about what kind of care is provided and whether or not that care is affirmed and appropriate. There's so many layers, I think, to creating safer spaces for people to see themselves mirrored in their clinic and understand that their care is valued there. And there are so many really great resources. I'm thinking of one out of Fenway that talks about how to create an inclusive space for LGBTQ patients in what may otherwise not be a dedicated space to them, such as a general family practice clinic.
1: So do you have any other references providers can go to? You know, you can talk about either that want to create this inclusive space and for providers who want to refer their patients for hormone therapy?
2: There are these clinics pretty well-known where Natalie works, where I work, Fenway, the LA LGBT Center, Mazzoni in Philadelphia. Yeah, Brown in Chicago. Yeah, the Whitman Walker in DC. There are these sort of pretty well-known clinics where people can go. Um, And I know that there are a lot of other organizations that are expanding their services. Planned Parenthood is wanting to provide gender-affirming care. I think there are 17 states um, that have Planned Parenthood clinics are now providing at least hormone therapy for patients who are wanting that aspect of gender-affirming care.
3: And there's a lot of really great resources online for places that maybe are not going to be providing hormones, but that are interested in making sure that their space is more inclusive. And there's a lot of work around not just making clinics more inclusive, but making schools more inclusive and workspaces more inclusive. So that, I mean, the whole safe space or safe space movement, if I can call it that, I'm not sure that I can, but the idea that there is an attention in a variety of places outside of just clinics for it to be LGBTQ affirming.
2: Even something as simple as like making sure your signature in your email has your pronouns, but just making sure that, you know, everyone's signature in their email has their pronouns under their name is part of this movement that Natalie has now created.
3: (laughs) I mean, the only other thing to add really to that discussion is this is one of the things that the internet has actually been really wonderful for. Obviously, we have some problems with uh, accurate information being out there on the internet, but there's also a great benefit to how it has connected people to each other within the LGBTQ community, as well as to information and to resources that seek to affirm who they are and provide them with connections to other people, areas of care, groups, you know, that they could potentially meet with or be a part of. I think that it it is one of the really wonderful things that we've seen come out of the internet is how people have been able to not be as isolated and be far more informed about LGBTQ issues.
0: All right. Well, we would both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health or communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end?
2: I want to say thank you again for including us in this incredibly important discussion. And we hope that this has been informative and helpful for those who are wanting to reach A broader population. And, you know, we are also available as a resource for providers. I am very open to receiving emails if, you know, people want to reach out and ask questions or get more information. Or if they have a patient who is wanting a specific type of care and the provider isn't sure how to help them, but wants to help them, then, you know, Natalie and I are both here. And available.
0: And just to clarify that we put your emails on there. So if the folks listening do have questions, go ahead and email Stephanie and I at WCH at womancenteredhealth.com. We will connect you to Dr. Sean, Dr. Hinchcliffe. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Did you know that you can get our show notes for every episode just by becoming a patron of our podcast? Check out our website to find out how you can become a patron and keep us recording at com. Just click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Also on our website, you can send us your thoughts and let us know if you are interested in being on our podcast. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and on Facebook.